Welcome to the U.S.-China Dialogue Podcast from Georgetown University. This podcast series explores diplomacy and dialogue between China and the United States during the four decades since normalization of relations in 1979. We'll hear from former ambassadors, cabinet secretaries, and White House advisors who will share how they shape the course of the most complex relationship in international diplomacy today. I'm your host, James Green. Today on the podcast, we talk with Winston Lord. Almost no other U.S. official has had the range of experience in dealing with China as Winston Lord. This blue-blooded New Yorker and Yale grad participated in the highest levels of decision-making and negotiations around U.S. foreign policy for over three decades. From his time as special assistant to National Security Advisor Henry Kissinger in the Nixon White House to ambassador to China in the run-up to the June 1989 Tiananmen crackdown to the Assistant Secretary of State in the 1990s, handling human rights and trade, Wynne Lord was literally present at the creation of diplomatic ties between the U.S. and China. To set the stage, here's Kissinger, years later, explaining the secret trip he took with Wynne Lord to Beijing in 1971. They met with the Chinese premier at the time, Zhou Enlai, to work on the president's pending visit. Uh, I went to China uh, in October. He was going in February to prepare the communique and to prepare the visit, to work out an agenda, uh, to pick the topics. And we had prepared a sort of uh, typical kind of communique. And uh, at the first session, Joe and Light said, OK, we'll look at it. But then he came back having consulted with Mao. And Mao uh, said, uh, uh, this is bullshit. <laughs> In his wide-ranging discussion with me, Ambassador Lord explains why he's a flaming centrist in foreign policy, about how Chinese communists differ from Vietnamese and Soviet counterparts, and about how Chinese Premier Li Peng rigged a mixed doubles tennis match when he was U.S. ambassador. As he moves into his eighth decade, Lord slyly invokes Lady Gaga in explaining how Chinese diplomacy can be incredibly nuanced and charming towards old friends. Ambassador Lord concludes with some frank words for how current critics of diplomatic dialogue with China have twisted the historical record. Ambassador Winston Lord, thank you so much for taking time. I really appreciate it. Uh, you've got such a great personal history working on China and on East Asia. Before getting to the specifics of your career, I just wanted you to step back and put your policy planning strategy hat on and think about your own views on foreign policy. In the literature, there's kind of the realists and then there's the uh, idealists. And it seems to me in your career, you've kind of done a little bit of both. That is, you've been a pragmatist in dealing with the Vietnam War when you were at the NSC, but then on human rights issues in China, more kind of tending towards the idealist side of, of American foreign policy. How do you see yourself in your, your time of working on China and on Asia? Well, I'm a flaming centrist in general, including on this debate in foreign policy about pragmatism versus idealism, which in many ways I think is a phony distinction. But I'm a classic schizophrenic if you look at my background. On the one hand, I was Kissinger's closest associate for eight years, and his emphasis on human rights is not uncontrolled, uh, although he cares about him. Uh, he's a classic realpolitik pragmatist, and I have great respect and affection for him. And 
help to carry out those kinds of policies. On the other hand, my mother was ambassador for the United States to the United Nations for Human Rights, taking Eleanor Roosevelt's place. My wife uh, was chair of Freedom House, which promotes democracy, and got an award from President Clinton, the Eleanor Roosevelt Award for Humanitarian Advocacy. Uh, and I was chairman of the National Endowment for Democracy. So human rights and values are also crucial to me. I think these can be blended. They can't always control an agenda with an important country like China. You have security, economic, and diplomatic objectives which have to take precedent. But I think it should always be part of our agenda. Um, well, let's move into your time at the National Security Council on Vietnam. Uh, you spent a lot of time with Kissinger and uh, dealing with winding down the Vietnam War. That was a certain group of communists. And uh, I guess I, I, before getting to your time dealing with the Chinese communists, I wonder if there's anything in the Paris Peace Accords and the Paris Peace Process dealing with the hot war in Vietnam and with the Soviets that makes you that experience think about how to deal with the Chinese government or to deal with China? Well, I was fortunate to be involved in all three of those areas, as you mentioned, and it proved that there wasn't a communist monolith when it comes to negotiating styles and techniques. The three were totally different, and the Vietnam negotiations, as well as the Russians, did not in any way prepare us for the Chinese. You have to look at each individual negotiating style, which is often a product of history and, and culture and identity. Uh, the Vietnamese uh, were revolutionaries, and they didn't believe in genuine negotiations like Americans do. They, they used that as a weapon to further their objectives of taking over South Vietnam, and therefore they stalled for two years in the peace talks, uh, playing to American opinion and trying to destroy uh, support for the Nixon administration's Vietnam policy. Also, we were unilaterally withdrawing under Vietnamization, and so they figured time was on their side as well. However, in October 72, we had a breakthrough because they saw that Nixon was going to be reelected in a landslide, and they figured they're going to have to deal with this madman for another four years, so they better make a deal now. The Russians are like uh, rug merchants uh, haggling uh, over every detail. Uh, cheating on translations of communiques uh, <clears throat> because of their history of having been invaded so many times uh, and insecurity. These two styles were totally different from the Chinese, based on 5,000 years of being number one in the world with maybe about 150 years from the mid-1800s to the mid-1900s. Uh, and therefore they had a certain self-confidence, in, including even arrogance, but also a feeling they could take the long view and they'd be in the Middle Kingdom again one day. So the Chinese approach was the one that was most refreshing. They were tough, mm -hmm. but also most suited to Kissinger because we were just starting a relationship after 22 years, and therefore the conversations were strategic and conceptual, not haggling over specific issues. We didn't have any issues to talk about at the beginning. And so with the Chinese, the Americans and the Chinese side, and Kissinger and Zhou Enlai were uniquely qualified for this, would lay out uh, longer-term objectives, uh, balance of power, strategic concerns, uh, but also what essentially was the bottom line for each country. doesn't mean you wouldn't haggle and maybe inflate it by 10%, but it wasn't like the Russians and the rug merchant approach or the Vietnamese who were not negotiating at all. 
Uh, and thus, given the taking of the long view, we're able to get over the hump of Taiwan, which we can discuss in further detail, uh, in order to move ahead with our joint objectives. So the Vietnamese, <clears throat> uh, really, that's a fascinating way to look at how these different countries right. negotiate. The Vietnamese felt like they were playing for time because right. it would hurt the U.S. side domestically, right. but they really weren't kind of sitting at the table with proposals back and forth. They would come and sit and then repeat talking points and there was no real engagement. Is that right? There's no real discussion of That's the substance. That's right. I mean, again, without getting into great detail, their position from the very beginning was for us to have our prisoners back, essentially. We had to unilaterally withdraw and as we left, to overthrow the Saigon government. We agreed to a graduated withdrawal unilaterally, both to turn up more responsibilities over to the South Vietnamese and to maintain American political support, even as we negotiated secretly. We paid a price for that because nobody knew we were negotiating seriously. But we weren't about, for terms of morality, in terms of investment, and in terms of credibility as a world leader, to overthrow an allied government on the way out. This impasse lasted for two years, uh, negating critics who say we could have had to deal earlier, we couldn't have had to deal earlier. Uh, and uh, finally, when the Vietnamese saw that Nixon was going to be reelected, they dropped their political demand. We had a breakthrough, and we had the Paris Accords uh, the following January. And so the breakthrough was from the political situation in the U.S., not the opening to China? Uh, that's correct. Now, that's a good point. The opening to China and to, therefore, better relations with uh, Moscow uh, was designed for a variety of reasons. Uh, one, the main objectives on the U.S. side uh, were, number one, to show that we had diplomatic flexibility and, and uh, skill despite being in this Vietnam War. We weren't pinned down. Secondly, to show that the communist world wasn't monolith. We'd already done a little work with the East European countries, uh, but also this would make clear that uh, uh, there were cracks in the, the so-called monolith of uh, communism. Thirdly, uh, perhaps most importantly, we wanted good relations with Moscow, but we're having trouble. And we figured if we open up with China, uh, particularly after the border clashes in 1969 between the Chinese and the Russians, that we would get the Russian attentions. Uh, we wanted more stability in Asia over the long run, and we figured over the long period there might be some economic and other advantages. Those were our objectives, uh, along with the one you just referenced, namely an impact on Hanoi. We figured that opening up with Hanoi, I mean opening up with Moscow and Beijing, the two patrons of Hanoi would put some pressure on them uh, to negotiate, both to show that their patrons cared about relations with us uh, even more than they did with, <coughs> with Hanoi. I mean, after all, we were bombing and mining uh, North Vietnam, just before Moscow summit and Brezhnev went ahead with it anyway. We didn't expect them to cut off aid to Hanoi. We did expect them in their own self-interest, both the Chinese and the Russians, to exert pressure or at least encourage Hanoi to make a military settlement only and get this war over with. Something uh, The Chinese in particular didn't want to see Americans humiliated, even though we were on the border. They didn't want to get us out of there, of course. Uh, because they wanted us to balance the, the Soviets, and therefore they wanted us to look credible. So, yes, the o opening to China, as well as the positive impact on relations with Moscow, one of the components, one of the objectives was to try to loosen up Hanoi's negotiating approach. It was helpful, 
uh, but it wasn't decisive, as I've already said. Now, I might quickly add, since we're talking about the opening, China's two objectives were, number one, to balance the polar bear to the north, where they just had these border clashes and where Brezhnev had invaded Czechoslovakia in 68 and was claiming to be the sole spokesman for the communist world. Uh, and so they wanted the far barbarian to balance the near barbarian. And secondly, they were totally isolated. They're still in the Cultural Revolution. Every ambassador had been called home except one, Huang Hua in Egypt. Uh, and they figured if they opened with us that people hanging back at our insistence, like Japan and parts of Europe, would follow uh, and normalize relations, and they get into the United Nations. What you have as a result is a clear win-win situation for both sides. The Chinese did indeed manage to balance the Soviets and lessen that threat, and they got in the United Nations quite quickly, and many countries, including Japan, went ahead and normalized. So their two objectives were met. Ours were as well. We had immediate positive impact by opening to China on our relations with Moscow. They had been dragging their feet about a summit which we wanted, and after the opening to China and Kissinger trip was revealed, and by the way, on the, on the way to Beijing on that secret trip, we did one last check with the Russians whether they wanted a summit, and they said no. Within weeks after the Kissinger trip, they agreed to a summit. We made major progress on arms control and major progress on an agreement on Berlin. We also got some modest help uh, on the Vietnam negotiations. We did show that we could operate on the world stage with skill. Uh, and so each side achieved its primary objectives. Well, I want to get to the normalization sure. part and your part in it, uh, in which the, in the secret trip, I think that you said publicly about you were the, had uh, went to the front of the plane that went from Pakistan into flying to Beijing. Could you just talk a little bit about that trip and then sure. stepping back a little bit about, <coughs> you had mentioned the Chinese objectives. What kind of surprised you or didn't about the way the Chinese uh, interacted with us? First, in order to move ahead with the Chinese, we had to operate on two fronts. Uh, let me quickly note that one week after Nixon's inauguration, he sent a memo to Kissinger saying, let's uh, try to reach out to the Chinese. He had written an article, Nixon did, in Foreign Affairs in 67, sort of foreshadowing that. Both Kissinger and Nixon independently thought we should deal with the Chinese. <coughs> Nixon's emphasis was in bringing them into the world order, figured with a quarter of the world's people, you couldn't have a stable international structure. Uh, Kissinger's emphasis was more strictly geopolitical and balance of power, including the impact on the Soviets, but they both felt we should move ahead. So we had to move ahead on two fronts because we had not talked to each other except in Warsaw and Geneva with meaningless propaganda exchanges for 22 years and were hostile uh, embargoes and we'd fought each other in Korea. So publicly, we had to begin preparing audiences where we were headed, not only the Allies, but Congress and the American public. And so a series of unilateral, uh, modest economic steps, which the Chinese didn't have to respond to, were designed to send signals to all audiences, including the Chinese, that we're ready to move in a different direction. We made certain rhetorical flourishes and speeches and others, uh, which suggested uh, that uh, we were ready to deal with China. Uh, and then the other track was the secret one, to get to the secret trip, to try to establish communications with the Chinese. We tried Romania, France, a few others, but we finally settled mutually on Pakistan. And, uh, and here, sorry, why was that? Why was Pakistan? Well, Pakistan was very close to China. Uh, 
they, they didn't want Romania because that was part of the Eastern Europe, and even though they were pretty independent of Moscow, they still were worried about that. I think they never said this explicitly. France, of course, was a NATO uh, ally, uh, so that didn't work. Pakistan, we had friendly relations with both China and, and uh, United States. Frankly, were leaning toward Pakistan against India in those days because India seemed to be pro-Moscow. So that was a solid ally uh, for both. So we began to exchange messages through the Pakistani channel. The Pakistani ambassador in Washington would come and call on Kissinger in his office with messages from Joe and Lai. Mm -hmm. uh, usually it would just be Henry and me receiving him, and then we would pen a response after he was, we'd check with the president. Uh, and we finally uh, agreed on an envoy from the U.S. to see whether a presidential summit made sense. We were in uncharted territory. People right. forget now that this was pretty courageous by Nixon. It is true that his right flank was protected being an anti-communist and a Republican. It would be easier for him than Humphrey, but still he reached out not knowing the Chinese response and not knowing the American public response. Uh, so we finally agreed on Kissinger going, but only until we made sure the agenda would be beyond Taiwan. Mm -hmm. We'll get into the Taiwan issue in more depth, but the fact is that for 22 years, no negotiations were possible, for Beijing said, unless we solve the Taiwan question. That's the only issue they wanted to talk about. That was their initial position in these secret exchanges, and we finally broadened the agenda. And once they agreed to talk about other issues, mm -hmm. uh, then we agreed uh, to so, the trip. So initially, sorry, they had basically a precondition of solve Taiwan, and then we could talk about other yeah, issues. Yeah, it wasn't quite that explicit, but it was the, the only issue that they wanted to talk about, essentially. Mm -hmm. I'm sure they were realistic enough to know that wasn't going to do the trick. And in fact, the Chinese generals who advised Mao to open up with us clearly saw the Soviet factor. So I'm sure the Chinese in the beginning wanted to talk about that. But mm -hmm. their initial position, we wouldn't buy. We didn't want to go there with only Taiwan on the agenda, obviously. Right. Uh, so we settled on the secret trip. Uh, and it was part of a public trip uh, to Southeast Asia, India, and Pakistan. Uh, and then we were going to sneak off secretly from Beijing to Islamabad. And the cover story was that Kissinger had a stomach virus and had to go up to a hill dacha, so to speak, uh, and recover. Unfortunately, he got a real stomach ache in India before we even got there, and he had to hide it so he could save his real story. So I don't know if you want to get into the mechanics of the secret. Yeah, I would, I'd not. just be, be yeah. Well, I think for people who aren't familiar with that, sure. it would be very helpful. Uh, I, I recommend my all history at adst.org for those who want to get into great detail. It's, a, it's in the State Department it's all history collection. Extremely detailed. It, it great. may not be the most important, but it's the longest. Uh, Tom Pickering, uh, renowned diplomat, was the closest in length, and I told the State Department. If he gets too close, let me know. I'm going to go in and dictate <laughs> some more, you know. Uh, <clears throat> so uh, we checked on the way there. We checked with Al Haig, Kissinger's deputy, to see whether the Soviets, who were given a last offer for a summit, had bitten. And they, he called me in New Delhi and said, no, they hadn't. It's some cold words that uh, a, a second grader could figure out. It wasn't very, very clever. So. Uh, we decided we would move toward a summit with the Chinese first. Uh, we went to a banquet hosted by the president of Pakistan. Then after the banquet, we snuck off to the airport driven by their, I think, defense minister. Uh, a Secret Service person impersonated Kissinger, went up to a hill station, 
and was there, and we, we issued a statement that he was recovering, and then we extended by another day. We needed 48 hours uh, for the Beijing trip. In fact, to prepare for that, Pakistanis interviewed some doctors, and anyone who said they could recognize Kissinger was dismissed, and they got <laughs> someone else. So while this was happening as a cover story, we s snuck off on the president of Pakistan's plane. It was a Pakistani plane with flight attendants and pilots up front being Pakistani. I was in the back of the plane with Kissinger and some Chinese who came down to accompany us. <clears throat> and as the plane got to the Chinese border, keeping in mind that nobody official from the U.S. had been to China for 22 years, I was in the front of the plane and Kissinger was in the back, so I was the first one into China. He actually admits this grudgingly in his memoirs, but he, of course, elbowed me aside and got off the plane first, but I was the first one in the Chinese Airspace. territory. On any event, we get, uh, by the way, on the plane, uh, you would think Kissinger would be preoccupied with the geopolitical earthquake he was about to create, uh, the James Bond secrecy aspect, uh, how he's going to deal with Joe and Lai. No, no, his main preoccupation was the fact that his staff assistant forgot to pack any shirts for him. So he was very concerned about how it was going to look. Uh, and At a uh, time when in Beijing you couldn't just go out and buy a, a Exactly a shirt right, that's rack. right. And it, in a way, it's, it's these historic meetings, oh, this was secret, so you didn't know how many photographs would be released. You can see why someone would want to look ridiculous. He bought a shirt from John Holdridge, who was with us, a China-Asia expert, who was about 6'3", Henry's about 5'8", five, 5'9". Five, so he went around looking like a penguin. Uh, and, of course, on top of that, I immediately said to Henry, we haven't even started negotiating with Joe and I yet, and you've already lost your shirt. <laughs> and then it turns out the shirt had a label that said Made in Taiwan. So, so that was amusing, <laughs> but also very exciting. Uh, so in the 48 hours, there were two main objectives. Well, the, the objective was to see whether a presidential trip made sense. So that meant some very in-depth discussions. We had about 17 hours in four. 48 hours with Joe and Lai and his lieutenants, mostly Joe and Lai, going over various agenda items, of course Taiwan, but also the Soviets, uh, Vietnam, uh, the Middle East, uh, Korea, Japan, and so on, to see where there was enough to discuss for the president that uh, that would not be total hostility and, and so on. And we that was clear. And it was fortunate you had people like Joe and Lai and Kissinger uh, conducting this conversation. The other was to have a specific announcement uh, of the Kissinger trip and the fact it would be a presidential trip. And this resulted in some real haggling. I said the Chinese take the long view, and that's true, but in this specific communique, the basic issue was this. The Chinese wanted to make it look like Nixon was desperate to come to China, and they graciously agreed to welcome him. We wanted to make it look like the Chinese were desperate to have Nixon come to China, and we graciously and you, you agreed to, right? to, to, to come. Yeah. So we ended up with a middle ground, which basically says, knowing of, Kissing, of Nixon's interest in coming to China, the Chinese have invited him to come. Right. We also agreed that this was so dramatic that you didn't need a long statement. So we had a very brief, probably less than a minute statement, which Nixon announced on July 15, a few days after we got back. And the Chinese had agreed to what and, that and wording we, was. And, that's right. We, we, but it took uh, several hours of negotiation uh, and we were on a tight time frame because of the secrecy. Uh, so that was a little nerve-wracking, uh, but we finally agreed on a mutual uh, proclamation. And of course, it was dramatic and shook up the world. Um, on the, the trip itself, you've said elsewhere that you all weren't sure, and you spent a lot of time preparing for Nixon's trip, lots of different binders and lots of different 
scenarios so that the president would be right. prepared. Uh, the Chinese didn't let you know explicitly that there would be a meeting with Mao. Uh, could you just, and that, that really hasn't changed much. The Chinese side still holds <coughs> out a meeting with a top leader or a right. senior official until the person's on the ground or maybe even after they're on the ground right. and then we'll announce kind of, oh, you're having this meeting. Could you talk a little bit about the moving forward a little bit to yeah. Nixon's trip yeah. and uh, that orchestration and how it ended up going? Yeah, first, a, a note on Nixon. Uh, he's got his dark side. We all know the yin and yang of Richard Nixon. I, I think anybody would admit that he was very well versed and very strategic in foreign affairs and reached out and hired someone, namely Kissinger, who he didn't even know who'd worked for Rockefeller and was a liberal immigrant Jewish uh, personality, which is not exactly Nixon's basic style. Uh, <clears throat> I've participated in many summits with many presidents. I've never seen anybody prepare as carefully and as well as Nixon did for this summit. Uh, we compiled, uh, I was in charge of the briefing books, so by all means the experts were providing the material, but I was coordinating it all and wrote some of it myself. There were six big black books and I know he read every one because there was his markings on almost every book. And as we flew, stopping in Hawaii and Guam on the way to Beijing, uh, in Air Force One, he kept sending more questions back to us. So he was extremely well prepared and handled himself uh, extremely well. Uh, the poor guy was stumped when he was asked what he thought of the Great Wall. And he said, certainly is a Great Wall. I don't know what I would have done any better than that either. So anyway, to get to your question, um, we were, we were frankly confident that Mao would beat Nixon. I mean, if the Chinese are going to take this risk, after all, it's a risk for them, with their cadres and their allies, as well as for us, and mm -hmm. with their self-interest in balancing the Soviets in particular and getting out of isolation, they weren't about to humiliate the president by not having a, a meeting. So although they were never explicit, typical Chinese tactic, as you say, uh, we were confident this would happen. We did, however, assume what happened at the end of the trip, where he put his blessing on the trip. Mm -hmm. So you'd have some meetings with Joe and Lai. Yeah, and, and, then, and that he end. would make sure that it was, it was blessed, because by then they were sure of the outcome. To our surprise and delight, an hour after we arrived in the guest house, Joe and Lai came back and said to Kissinger, Ma wants to see the president right away. This is a typical emperor summoning you uh, offhand at his discretion. But we, of course, realized this was major breakthrough because it was putting his imprimatur on the whole visit and our new relationship at the very beginning, sending a message to his cadre and his people that I'm behind this. Mm -hmm. So we were very pleased, uh, without going into great detail, uh, to my everlasting uh, gratitude, Kissinger asked me to go along to the meeting. Uh, Nixon only wanted Kissinger there. There was some thought that maybe Mao would have a second meeting at the end. That's sort of naive, I think. But in that case, uh, Secretary of State Rogers would have been invited. So I went along. At the end of the meeting, we can talk about the meeting, of course. Uh, the Chinese came in with a photograph of all of us and a communique about all of us. And Kissinger turned to Joe and I, uh, well, maybe it was Nixon, and said, Mr. Lord was never at this meeting. Uh, so they cut me out of the communique and the photographs. And in the communique, sorry, just to be clear, they listed who was in the meeting. Yeah, except for me. Uh, and they showed a picture of Nixon and Kissinger, and they cut it off just uh, before my image would, uh, would appear. Uh, and they did it for good reasons, uh, Nixon and Kissinger did. It was humiliating enough for Secretary Rogers not to be in the meeting with the National Security Advisor and the President. Uh, 
But to have a third person, a 30-year-old punk, uh, in the meeting <laughs> at the same time would have been too much. So for a couple of years, all the official photographs and all the announcements and all the historical novels and uh, treatises about this opening uh, had two people in one, even the Nixon uh, Mao opera, by the way, which I went to see and I was distraught that Placido Domingo did not play my role as the <laughs> third person in the meeting. <coughs> so uh, the only person who knew essentially was my wife mm -hmm. uh, from Shanghai and I wasn't about to keep it secret from her. Uh, but then, sorry, later the Chinese did. Well, flash forward, yeah. we, uh, another trip. I was on nine trips in this period with uh, both President and with, and with uh, Kissinger alone, uh, every meeting with Mao, Zhou, and, and Deng Xiaoping. Uh, we were there, Kissinger and I, uh, and a, a big delegation. I mean, not big, but we had a very distinguished group on the American side, including George Bush, liaison chief, Brent Scowcroft, a man named Phil Habib, who was a top Asian expert. In the middle of the meeting with Joe and Lai, one night, uh, Mao's grandniece came and handed him a note, and he announced that Chairman Mao wanted to meet with Dr. Kissinger and Mr. Lord. Now, Chairman Mao wouldn't know me from Lady Gaga, you know, but what <laughs> they were doing, very skillfully and to my delight, knowing that the world did not know I'd been in the first Mao meeting, they decided to make it clear that I could make the second. Kissinger could only take one person. I was lowest on the totem pole in protocol. Mm -hmm. So the Chinese jumped me over Bush and Scowcroft, Habib and all the others, and I, I got to go. And then at that meeting, Joe and I gave me a photograph of the original Mao-Nixon summit showing me in it to prove I'd been there. Right, right, well. You've mentioned all of these meetings that you were in right. with senior Chinese leaders. Could you just reflect a little bit on what each of the three that you had mentioned, Mao, Zhou Enlai, and Deng Xiaoping, were like in right. negotiating with the United States? That is, we were looking right. at setting this communique up to establish diplomatic ties. Right. Can you kind of just go through how each of them differed in their approach with sure. us on that? Sure. Each of the three were totally different. The Mao meeting with Nixon, our initial reaction, Kissinger and myself, when we came out of it, was some disappointment. Uh, we weren't so much disappointed the length, it was an hour, and it turns out that he almost didn't have a meeting at all, Mao. He was very sick even then, and it, his doctor didn't want him to have it. And so by doing an hour, he was exerting himself to the greatest extent possible. Did you read Dr. Lee Jersway's book I, about I that? Yeah, it's a yeah, fascinating story about the, the Chinese side of it. Yeah, and remind me, because that book is related to the Joe-Mao relationship. Uh, so, but what we were most sort of puzzled by was Mao's desire not to engage in substance with Nixon, who kept raising issues, Mao would use brush strokes. He basically said, that's up to Joe and Lai. I don't get into details. Uh, and Nixon wanted to talk about some of the substance. But Mao was not doing it, partly out of his own stamina, probably, and where he was. But more importantly, he did want to leave it to Joe and Lai. But we realized as the days followed, and we negotiated with Joe and Lai, that Mao had in his seemingly random brushstrokes had set the f major parameters of the Chinese position the, on the key issues. It was clear he was worried about the Russians. It was clear he would take his time on Taiwan and wasn't pressing that issue. It was clear he liked conservatives in the United States who could carry out the China policy. So these brushstrokes then informed what Joe and Lai did. So Mao was rough, like a union leader, a peasant background, uh, could be body in some of his uh, references, uh, had no elegance, but exuded strength and determination, no question about it. 
Then you got the Joe and Lie who Kissinger has said, and I, with a much, much more modest dance card, would say was the greatest diplomat he ever met. And their conversations, hundreds of hours, were absolutely extraordinary. And he was totally different, of course. In fact, totally different from anybody Kissinger or I have ever met. This is not to whitewash him. Uh, you don't get to be number two. Uh, actually, he made sure he was number three in China without being pretty ruthless yourself. Although he did tame down some of Mao's uh, extremities, including during the Cultural Revolution, and, and he was a pragmatist in many ways. Uh, but he had the elegance of a Mandarin scholar. He had tremendous grasp of history and culture. Uh, he was very well-informed, never looked at any briefing books. That's why Nixon and, and Kissinger decided not to have any briefing books in front of them. They didn't want to be outshone I by see. Joe and Lai's well, grasp. They wanted to make sure they mastered their brief. That's right. Well, in fact, they both did, of course. They're both extraordinary in that respect. Uh, and he uh, was charming, had a sense of humor, but very firm, but also conceptual and strategic and able to maneuver within the limits. Uh, so he was uh, extraordinary. And he, he, he uh, skillfully used personal gestures. Uh, for example, one of our secretaries on a trip uh, was sick. He sent his own doctor over to help her. And the most extraordinary example that I can remember in terms of his subtlety was uh, on a subsequent trip, probably February 74, I'm not sure of the exact date, Kissinger and Joe and I are having their final meeting. Uh, and at the end of it, like they always do, they sort of sat around just talking about history and philosophy and so on. Uh, the lead up to that meeting was we were staying in the Jayutai, the guest area in, in, in Beijing. And Kissinger and I will often take walks to talk about strategy, thinking we wouldn't be bugged outside like we were certainly being bugged inside, which has its advantages. I used to say, I. Uh, I hate certain kinds of Chinese food, and we wouldn't get them on the menu. <laughs> right, uh, if you use the messaging system, it could work <laughs> to your advantage. But uh, every time we got to a certain bridge, uh, a PLA or a police officer would pop up and prevent us from crossing that bridge. We couldn't figure out why. We could wander anywhere else in the compound. So on the final night, as I'm getting back to that, at the end of the meeting, in an extraordinary gesture of diplomatic protocol, namely... Joe and I, you know, being premier and outranking kids, agreed to walk him back to our guest house. Mm -hmm. And he took us back over that bridge. Uh, over the Caribbean bridge. Never said a word, never yeah. said anything. Anyway, it turns out I think the bridge was near the uh, visiting dignitary. It might have been Sianork, or it might have been uh, somebody else. Uh, leader. Uh, so, uh, so that's Joe and Lai's mm -hmm. style. Deng Xiaoping was sort of unorthodox. He was somewhat spontaneous, not as much as Hu Yabang, who I also met, but uh, here he was, this four foot ten guy, but brimming with self-confidence, uh, would speak quite candidly, was generally very positive in our relationship. Often we'd have bad cops before, and then we'd get the dung, and he'd be the good cop. Magnanimous. That's and right. Welcoming. And also, of course, key to the reform and the opening, as well as good U.S.-Chinese relations. He didn't have the uh, the elegance of, uh, of Joe and Lai, but he certainly knew his brief. But he too would say, uh, I'm only you know vice chairman of the Bridge Association, which of course <laughs> is nonsense when he ran, ran the government and the party, but he, 
he, he basically would not get into great detail, just like Mao would. So he was somewhere in between Mao and Joe. Mm-hmm. One last comment, the relationship between Mao and Joe, very complicated one. But here you have Joe and Lai and the meetings which he was conducting, incredibly impressive, domineering, not dominating in a bad sense, but I mean just... Mastered his brief. Ma- mastered his brief, charismatic, and so on. In the five meetings with Mao, uh, he was not only deferential, almost obsequious. Not only he didn't speak, but his body language showed his adoration of the chairman. Uh, so you all, sorry, you all would meet with Joe and I, and then meet with Mao. And yeah, Joe wouldn't and I be, would be it, there. Yeah, oh yeah, yeah. but it wouldn't be one immediately no. right afterwards. Sure. But, but I mean, the point is that Joe and I was always there, mm-hmm. and Joe and I is always a totally different person. Uh-huh. And this is borne out by a doctor's book, which very poignant and very uh, sad in many ways. Joe and I maintained his allegiance to Mao to the end. Uh, he had cancer. Mao was also very sick, and the issue was who's going to die first and who could help set the transition with the moderates, say, under Joe and Mao, more radical leanings. Mao prevented Joe and I from having an operation. Now, whether that would have saved his life, I don't know. But Joe and I knew that Mao had prevented the operation, and yet on his deathbed, he said, long live Chairman Mao. Amazing. Uh, before moving to your time as ambassador, right. I just wanted you to talk about the Taiwan issue, which was right. a, a critical part for right. the normalization talks and the communique. Understanding on the U.S. side, we have these global issues we want to talk right. about. On the Chinese side, Taiwan was there. Uh, can you just kind of introduce the main points of friction and then how we sure. talk through them? Clearly, the biggest obstacle to uh, new U.S.-China relations was the historic one of Taiwan, which uh, your listeners would know the background on this. And the Chinese had always insisted that we had to solve this before getting any traction in our relationship. They relaxed that condition at our insistence and in the secret communications, and therefore we had a big agenda for the summit. <clears throat> Nevertheless, both generally in moving ahead and specifically for the Shanghai communique, uh, we had to find a way to get around this issue. Now this reflects the Chinese negotiating style and self-confidence of the long view. Uh, we could not go forward if the Chinese had held to previous positions. And a lot of people, particularly on the right, say that Nixon and Kissinger made undue concessions on Taiwan to the Chinese, which is nonsense uh, for, for three reasons. Uh, first, uh, you can't move ahead with China with something that important to them without doing something on that front. Secondly, and I'll go into details, uh, I would argue the Chinese made greater concessions than we did. And thirdly, if you look at the last 40 or 50 years, I think successive presidents with ups and downs and twists and turns have handled this issue extremely well. We've moved ahead with a major, complicated, and now more fraught relationship with the Chinese, but at the same time, Taiwan has been an economic miracle, it's a flourishing democracy, and its security so far has been assured. So I would argue that we've done a good job, starting with Nixon and Kissinger. Now, uh, look at the Shanghai communique, look at the result of the, of the uh, talks. Kissinger and Nixon had to endorse a one-China policy, but they kept it extremely vague, and we used the formulation in the Shanghai communique, which I helped to draft, the communique, not that particular formulation, of all Chinese on either side of the strait believed in one China. We didn't say which one was the one China. A little misleading to say all Chinese and so on. It's, you could nitpick the, the wording, but the basically 
that's about all they did. There was sort of a desire to strengthen the relationship, which presumably the subtext would be over time normalized relations. But as a result of that particular uh, agreement, and the Shanghai Communique also said we would reduce our forces on Taiwan as conditions in the area permitted. Now, what this meant was uh, if the Vietnam War settled down, we can finish that, that we wouldn't need those troops in Taiwan related to Vietnam. So it's an incentive to the Chinese to help in the negotiations. And we didn't say all troops, and we said it, it's conditional. So as a result, we had this breakthrough in relations, and on Taiwan, they had to swallow, one, we maintaining diplomatic relations with Taiwan, not, with, not shifting them to China. In fact, it took another seven years under President Carter. Secondly, we maintain our mutual defense treaty with Taiwan. Thirdly, we maintain troops on Taiwan. Fourthly, we were maintaining selling arms to Taiwan, all of which is total anathema to the Chinese. So those who forget what the Chinese had to put up with are crazy, in my opinion. And then a further example is uh, a year or two later, the Chinese have always said we will never have an embassy in Washington as long as there's a Ta Taiwan embassy. Well, they didn't. But they agreed to a liaison office, which, and everything but name, and now it's switched as we speak here today, but it's a de facto embassy. So the Taiwan issue uh, was handled by both sides with an agreement to kick this can down the road while we focused on Soviet hegemony, which was in the communique, not with the Soviet adjective, mm -hmm. uh, and getting along with uh, mutual exchanges and, uh, and seeing where else we could begin to cooperate. Well, um, I want to move to your time as, uh, as ambassador um, when you arrived there in the mid-80s, I want to ask about Li Peng and other vignettes that you have, but how did you conceive of your mission? You were one of the first ambassadors since the embassy was set up. Uh, the relationship was expanding. There was a, a defense relationship that was starting to take off. There were also consular issues and other sorts of kind of challenges of just running an embassy. When you arrived, how did you conceive of what you should be working on? Well, from the opening in the early 70s, up until when I became ambassador, the major glue of our relationship with China was the balancing of the Soviet Union. Uh, I saw my mission, above all, of strengthening our bilateral relations beyond that phenomenon. So it wouldn't just be based on a, a negative, however important <clears throat> asset, but also that we would have real stakes. And therefore, I focused on, above all, business and economics happy to say that as a former U.S. trade representative uh, expert. Uh, <clears throat> I spent more time on business and investment and trade and technology issues than any other issue when I was ambassador, but also cultural exchanges and high-level exchanges between our two sides. So It's hard to remember there's a time when very few American officials had any exposure to China. That's at all. right. So we had all our cabinet officials, essentially, all the wow. military service chiefs, uh, the two heads of CIA, although on a black hat secret operations, wow. and a bunch of vice premiers and others coming to America, which I would accompany when I went back. Uh, so my point was, someday we might not have the anti-Soviet glue, and even if we did, that wasn't enough to sustain a relationship, and we have a quarter of the world's people, let's, let's build up. No, it wasn't just my idea, everyone, but that was my primary objective was to do that, and while maintaining that original foundation. So uh, at that point, we, ha with the help of uh, Pakistan, 
we and the Chinese provided aid to the Mujahideen uh, resisting the Soviet invasion. We had secret listening posts along the Soviet border to watch missile launches that I visited, and we manned them with the Chinese. Soviet missile launches. Yeah, Soviet missile launches. And we sold almost a billion dollars of arms to uh, to China, uh, which uh, even in those days, I mean, that's a lot of money. So we were continuing to nurture that dimension, but preparing for uh, other contingencies. And this turned out to be prescient. I left in 89, just as the Tiananmen Square demonstrations were beginning. But shortly after that, the Berlin Wall fell and, and the Soviet Empire fell, and therefore the glue that we had was gone, not to mention because the Tiananmen, the human rights issue was uh, ascending. So it was good we had these ties, and I, I was fortunate in my timing. I got to China as ambassador in 85. The Taiwan issue was relatively quiescent because the uh, third communique, uh, 1982, it sort of settled that fairly well, uh, and so we could focus on other issues. Reagan had had a successful trip, uh, and, and so we didn't have that hanging over us. And I left just uh, one week into the Tiananmen demonstrations, Hu Yabang's funeral, first major demonstration, 100,000 people, because our relationship took a nosedive after that. So I was there doing sort of a golden period. And I think most people would agree, no thanks to me. If you think anybody, thank my wife who did a terrific job. But uh, we really had very positive relations. We had human rights problems. We had Tibet. Taiwan was always in the background, technology issues. But on the whole, it was a very positive period. And not only in our vital relationship, but in the atmosphere in China. No, it wasn't moving toward a Jeffersonian democracy. But I think it's been fa- it's fair to say there's never been since then, as we speak here today, a period when there was more open discussion of political reform and loosening up the system, which we now know Zhao Jiang and Hu Yabang were in favor. That's why they were sacked by Deng. Uh, and so we could have reformers, even dissidents at our embassy, together with government and party officials sitting around the same table talking about political reform. And my, my wife did an extraordinary job, obviously with the embassy's uh, lead and help, of talking and interacting with, because uh, she's an author herself uh, in the cultural and other areas. We even produced the Kane Mutiny she did with Charlton Heston as the director. And that was sort of subversive because it's talking about a crazy leader. Right. Uh, <laughs> so my point is that both in the discussions and we go back and forth in the late 80s, but there was real genuine talk of separating the party from the state and other reforms, uh, a- as well as this uh, improvement in our bilateral relations. So I was very fortunate in my time. Uh, I want to get to the run-up to Tiananmen. Uh, you were there when the protesters were starting to right. kind of gather. Uh, could you talk a little bit about how you handicapped what would happen or what you all thought was going to happen? Maybe a couple of comments just before that. Uh, In reporting from the embassy, uh, nobody predicted, whether in the embassy or outside world, that you're going to have the Tiananmen demonstrations. And even some of your listeners might forget this was not a bunch of students in Beijing. This is 250 cities. This was a million people a day sometimes in Beijing of all walks of life, including party members, journalists, army members, as well as peasants, workers, dissidents, uh, students. Uh, So no one predicted that magnitude. We did, and I've gone back and looked at some of that, we, we did clearly document growing unease about inflation, about corruption, 
in the case of the students, their conditions uh, on campuses. Uh, and so uh, I'm not here to say we should have done better. Maybe we should have, but I mean, the point is we saw some signs. And the biggest sign I saw was a year before Tiananmen, 1988, uh, what has since been called the Democracy Salon run by the Beijing students, many of whom had prominent dissidents in the Tiananmen Square demonstrations a, a year later. Uh, my wife and I were invited to come out and speak. Again, my wife's from Shanghai and Chinese and so on. And somewhat naively, I, I didn't realize yet the combustible nature of democracy salon for the Chinese leadership. So we, of course, went out there. We always wanted to meet with Chinese students. We traveled all over China, and we'd meet with young people as well as think tanks and so on. And I was very careful, to, and this one, my wife, to stay away from really sensitive areas. I knew there'd be security people. I didn't want the students to get in trouble. But and I was Sensitive struck. areas would be what? Would be... Uh, Political reform, dissidents, uh, cracking down, uh, human rights. Uh, these Abolishing kind of, the Communist Party, these sorts of Yeah, uh, the party versus the state and, and Western ideals, all these things. Uh, most of their questions actually were in safe areas, uh, including student conditions, but also what it was like to have a Chinese-American marriage. Uh, a lot of questions to my, my wife about her perspectives on China and America. So it was very pleasant. And, and, but... Uh, I was careful, uh, even though I had some reservations, to say the least, about Deng's political views. I did praise him sincerely as a great reformer and for U.S.-Chinese relations. In fact, the Hong Kong press uh, the next couple of days mentioned how I'd been positive on Deng. Thus, to my surprise, a few days later at a banquet, a man named Han Shu, who was then the, Amer the Chinese ambassador to America, uh, came up to, he was home, home leave, came up to me on behalf of Deng Xiaoping and said, the chairman wants you to know that before you start meeting with groups like this, you really ought to get his permission. Wow. It was politely worded, but a real threat. Mm -hmm. I went back and said, get lost. Mm -hmm. No, I didn't put it that way. I had a little more elegant way of saying it, but I basically said, we wouldn't tell you, Mr. Han Shu, who you could see in America, and I'm trying to engage with all the Chinese people, including young people, and I have a right to do that, uh, and so I plan to continue to do it. Uh, so this showed me just how sensitive the situation was becoming there, I must say. Again, I didn't... This is a year before. Yeah, yeah. I, again, I'm not predicting, we weren't predicting what was going to happen, but I reported this encounter, which was uh, quite extraordinary. And of course, for a couple of weeks, some of my appearances at universities and think tanks mysteriously uh, got canceled, but Not finally, we, to host finally got back uh, back on track. Oh, uh, so that's sort of the sense we had. Then, as Tenement unfolded uh, on a scale that none of us would predicted, I think all of us were somewhat puzzled why the Chinese let this be televised all this time. You know. Now, I should add as a footnote here, uh, my wife had been lined up a few months before by CBS to be an observer of the Gorbachev visit, which was coming in May. No one knew it was going to be Tiananmen uh, de demonstrations. And she clearly was going to go back as a, an author and a Chinese and an expert, not as the wife of the former ambassador, and so that was never mentioned. So she was lined up by the 60 Minutes Don Hewitt to go back. And So coincidentally, after we left China uh, in April, mid-April, uh, just as the demonstrations were occurring, a couple of days later, she went back as an observer for CBS. 
uh, and stayed there until just before the end. So she and I and all of us were somewhat puzzled. They finally cut off the TV, and there's a famous picture of her and Dan Rather dragging this out as long as possible with the Chinese. And she was called by the Washington Post, I gotta get a few advertisements in here, as the best observer on television of what was happening. But I don't think she, and she was very close to many of the demonstrators, uh, or I or anybody else could predict what was gonna happen. And if you forced me to predict what would happen, I probably felt that it would wind down and that the Chinese, particularly when it got so big, they would make a few gestures to give them an excuse to the demonstrators to call it off. So agree to talk, uh, ongoing channel of communication, look into academic uh, conditions and, and housing conditions on campuses, uh, make some pledges on inflation and corruption of a, of a rhetorical nature, but enough so the students and the demonstrators felt they had gained something. But they're very tough on that, and so of course we ended up with a massacre that none of us predicted. Uh, and uh, in my view, it was totally unnecessary because by the time they moved in with their troops, there was only a few thousand left, and they clearly, uh, the situation was could have been resolved peacefully. So I thought it was uh, surprising they tolerated it for so long in a way, but also very depressing at, at the massacre that finally occurred. So I, I certainly would not have predicted how it came out. I would have thought it would have uh, sort of slowly dwindled down to, to a peaceful resolution. I wanted to move your time as uh, Assistant Secretary of the East Asia Pacific Bureau at the State Department in the 90s. You had worked on normalization and then it was kind of 20 years later. I guess before asking about the specifics of your time as the Assistant Secretary, was, were U.S.-China relations kind of about where you thought they would be in the early 1970s, mid-1970s, you know, 20 years later, or were they much more developed than you could have possibly imagined, or was it less robust than you might have hoped? Well, there's two ways of answering that question. <clears throat> One way is to say they obviously progressed more and faster than we thought, because in the 70s, we all know China's economic condition, et cetera, uh, and so as a result of Deng's reforms and their opening and their growing economic power, uh, and even some beginnings, minor compared to today, but of uh, influence and interaction on the Asian front as well as the global front, if you sat in the 70s, it was beyond what would have thought would happen, primarily because of the opening and their growing power, and therefore more interaction with us on a whole range of issues. On the other hand, in the early 90s, we were still recovering from Tiananmen Square. And we had the double problem of the Soviet glue, the anti-Soviet glue has disappeared from our relationship, and the human rights part, uh, the agenda had greatly increased. I mean, human rights began to be important and it was obviously sensitive. The Feng Lajure banquet thing showed just how sensitive the situation was. A few months later, we had Tiananmen Square, but it, it wasn't uh, as prominent as it was after Tiananmen and the massacre. So, in the early 90s, there were still tensions with the Chinese, even the residue. They still had, uh, they were denied, for example, most, what is then called most favored nation treatment, it's now normal trade relations, uh, which became a major issue. So, uh, we had other problems with the Chinese. So, yes, the relationship was much more expansive and interactive uh, 20 years after the opening, we would have predicted. But on the other hand, we were sort of in a, a, a holding pattern, or even a downturn, uh, and a recovery period from Tiananmen when I became assistant secretary. Uh -huh. So in that 
kind of role as assistant secretary, how did you balance human rights, security, non-proliferation, yeah. trade? There are a bunch of different baskets right. that were important. How did you kind of conceive of that, yeah. that those different well, baskets? Let me do generally, and then we get to the MFN question, because that really does uh, crystallize the issue. Generally, my approach, and I'd say the administration's approach, because I was a key factor in China policy, obviously, was as it always had been for me, namely that human rights should be in the agenda, but it shouldn't dominate the agenda when you're dealing with a big country like China. That it's in our self-interest to promote it, not just to maintain domestic congressional support for the relationship, not just to exhibit our values, uh, uh, but also, and not just to encourage reformers in China and so on, but in our concrete self-interest, uh, my view that more transparent, more democratic societies uh, easier partners. They don't fight each other in wars. They don't willingly harbor terrorists. They don't export refugees. They're easy to deal with, uh, not necessarily in trade, but things like uh, pandemics and so on. They don't hide things. So it's in our interest to have a more democratic liberal world. However, when you're dealing with China, this gets back to my approach then, you keep this on the agenda for those reasons, but it can't dominate the agenda. You, you're dealing with big nuclear questions, uh, security questions, uh, third world conflict questions, major trade, economic interests, cultural and scientific issues, uh, and therefore you had to assign human rights its proper place on the agenda. So that was the, the overall approach. There was the, with a major emphasis on, again, on economics and so on. Uh, but again, uh, <coughs> uh, with respect to China, there was a specific uh, issue, namely whether China should get normal trade relations like other countries. It says most favored nation, but it's sort of a misnomer. It really meant normal relations, not any special favors. Rebranded, yes, yeah, as normal trade relations. That's later. right. So uh, this had been an issue ever since the Tiananmen Square massacre. Uh, and uh, the question was, to what extent do you use whatever leverage we had in economics, because China had a trade surplus <laughs> compared to today. The trade surplus in a year then is about one day today, literally, literally. You know. So, But nevertheless, it was a significant trade deficit. So we figured, and many people figured there would be some leverage for us that they need us more than we need them in terms of balance of exports and investment and so on. Uh, and. Many of us, including myself, were disappointed in Bush's reaction to Tiananmen, particularly sending Scowcroft over there. Found out belatedly he went a week after Tiananmen, but he also had gone a few months later, which I criticized. Uh, and so I personally wrestled with the MFN question. Uh, I did not want to see China lose MFN status because we had huge economic interests, American jobs, trade, and investment. I did feel, not naively, but that the more we interacted economically, the more that might open up China, even its political system over time. Uh, so we had concrete interests. Uh, on the other hand, uh, I felt we, we had to try to do what we could on the human rights front. Uh, so I resisted uh, conditioning or revoking MFN for a couple of years, but finally before Clinton became president, I'd say, well, look, I think maybe what we should do is very modest conditions, but use our leverage to get some improvement on treatment of prisoners, uh, Red Cross visits, Tibet, uh, 
prison labor, some issues like that, which presumably shouldn't threaten the Chinese regime. And they had a stake in a good relationship, particularly economic, so that maybe we could use this if we had modest conditions. And so I, I was a proponent of that. Clinton brought onto it. I briefed him during the campaign when he became president. Uh, and I was assigned to negotiate uh, a deal with the Congress, and I worked with a woman named Nancy Pelosi uh, and George Mitchell, who was head of the Senate. And they were under great pressure from many in the Democratic Party particularly, but also Republicans, to either revoke MFN or to have really big conditions, including on nonproliferation and, and abortion policy and all kinds of things, not just strictly human rights, although abortion, you could argue, is human rights. So anyway, I negotiated a deal. I made the mistake. Uh, we didn't include the economic agency sufficiently because of their huge stake in that. We kept them informed, but they should have been part of the team. It was just me and the NSC guy, essentially. But what we negotiated were very modest conditions. Uh, it was an executive order, not legislation, giving the president more flexibility. Uh, there were two conditions which had carryovers on prison labor uh, and on uh, travel restrictions or something like that. I forget the exact details, which we continued. And then we had five others. I won't go into detail, but basically it said we had to make overall significant progress, leaving us the flexibility to define what's significant and what's overall? We didn't say all five had to have progress. We didn't have to say breakthroughs. So we felt that we had threaded the needle of using our leverage in MFN, but in a way that the Chinese could meet in their own self-interest. Uh, and at the time, I was a hero. I, mean, I was considered a genius to pull this off and resist much heavier conditions or revocation of MFN. And sorry, do you think you were brought in in some ways to a... You were a Republican, working for Republican administrations before, and you were brought into this Democratic administration. Do you think one of the reasons was to do just this sort of You know, I never thought issues? of that. I don't think so. No, I think it was because I was assistant secretary, and that I'd been at the opening with China, with Nixon and Kissinger, uh, been ambassador. I think it was, fr frankly, but, my background and credentials and my specific position. Uh, Indeed, I think I was hired because of my China background in many ways. So that was the reason. I hadn't thought of that other angle. Uh, uh, so uh, even Henry Kissinger said that that's not a bad agreement. I forget his exact wording. And Henry and I, of course, are always close, but we disagreed on this issue. And even the uh, the economic issues, uh, agencies correctly grumbled they went in on the takeoff, as, and therefore they had to be at the landing uh, without any say about it. But most people felt, including them, I think, even though they didn't want any conditions, which I understood, that it was the best possible deal given the political climate. Uh, and I almost became Deputy Secretary of State. That's another issue because of this success and some other things like lifting APEC to a summit at regional uh, conferences in Asia and so on. Uh, a year later, when MFN collapsed, uh, I was rumored to be fired. So uh, this is the roller coaster of a career that I've had. Being in the political stratosphere. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, to make a long story a little shorter, uh, over the coming months, we tried hard to get some gestures in human rights. And the dirty little secret is for a few months, I'm not saying breakthroughs, but we had some prisoners released, we had some Red Cross visit agreements, uh, prison labor was tightened up. Uh, we were making modest progress so that if it had continued, we probably would have had enough the following June to say, there's enough progress here, we continue MFN. However, the economic agencies were weighing in with the president because they didn't like any conditions. 
they wouldn't follow talking points or they would water them down about terms of trying to pressure the Chinese. Uh, we don't want to lose MFN, but you've got to help us with human rights. Uh, people like Kissinger and others were weighing in too, saying this was a mistake. And the president, to his discredit, rather than reigning in his cabinet agencies who were sabotaging us on background, with a key exception, a guy named Jeff Garten, who was under Secretary of Commerce, who defended me. He was terrific. He happened to be a close friend and he was on my policy planning staff, but still, he was the exception. But everyone else was, was sort of sabotaging this policy, showing the Chinese the divisions in our government, and the president not disciplining, showing that he was wavering. Plus the genuine interest of the president because of his domestic economics being his number one priority, that he didn't want to screw up the economy with this, although the China's impact would be much less than it is today. Uh, so the Chinese saw the disarray, didn't make any further gestures, began to roll them back, and, and then we had a very unpleasant uh, Secretary of State Christopher's trip in March uh, 1994, uh, a couple months before the MFN issue is going to be revisited by Congress, and that sank any chances for any human rights results. Uh, part of it was the Chinese were rounding up dissidents before we got there, and then our Assistant Secretary of Human Rights uh, met, uh, which is fine, with the key Chinese uh, dissident, Wei Jingxing, uh, but the problem is they didn't check with Washington. He did check with our ambassador, then State Roy. And then Wei went out and made a press conference. The Chinese might have swallowed it, but the, he, he got into the question of face. So the Chinese started rounding people up, and many in Congress and others were saying he should cancel his forthcoming trip to China. We were in Australia. I said, no, we shouldn't do that, uh, but you've got to protect your flank and also send a message to the Chinese. It's much easier to criticize what they're doing when you're not on Chinese soil. So issue some statements of unpleasant reaction by us to what they were doing. After all, they're the ones who are provoking us. Uh, but you should go ahead with the trip, otherwise the cancer would really destroy the relationships, not to mention the MFN question. So we went ahead with the trip, but it was very unpleasant. Uh, and I, I even had a press conference. I was proud of my phrasing at the time, but it probably didn't help. The Chinese have really been nasty, and so I got a question about uh, Chinese saying that uh, it's your fault that relations have deteriorated, you have all this friction on this trip, and I said that took a great leap forward of Hutzber. I said, uh, for them to say that. So anyway, it was very unpleasant. We therefore faced the issue when we came back in the next couple of months, since they clearly weren't going to meet the MFN conditions, what the hell do we do? So we had several options. One that we, I pushed and we all tried was, can we find a way to separate out uh, trade issues that would not affect Taiwan and Hong Kong. We didn't want to hit innocent bystanders, and they were very important. Or can we find a distinction between state enterprises and private companies, try to selectively revoke MFN, but without dumping the whole thing? We ran continual computer runs. We couldn't come up with a, f a good solution. The only one we finally came up with was selling arms was the, the one thing that we could, uh, without any prejudice or, or any fallout, stop. Uh, so that was one option, it just, the middle option, it just didn't work out. It would have been nice and not have worked. Second option was to say, oh yeah, they've made significant progress here, let's go ahead, which would have 
been not only dishonest, but no credibility with our domestic audience, and the Chinese would have thought we were pathetic. Uh, third option was, and we settled on it, was to change our policy with considerable embarrassment and say we we're going to pursue human rights through Radio Free Asia, through conditions for business, maybe uh, principles in doing business in China and human rights, to keeping after them and in international organizations to promote the Tibetan issue, uh, but that we were going to uh, stop uh, the effort to, to condition MFN, which just wasn't working. And it was the least bad option. We chose it, but that's when people were calling for my resignation as opposed to uh, enshrining me with halos. That discussion about MFN and human rights brings you to the kind of broader question. You've had so much experience over 20 plus years interacting with China, negotiating communiques and agreements. Stepping back, what do you think works in negotiating with Chinese officials? There's a kind of public element of it. There's a private one. There's <coughs> building trust. There's a, a range of different ways you negotiate. What do you think yeah. kind of works? Well, there's several principles, some of which sound like uh, fairly easy principles to come up with, but they're particularly important with the China. Look, every country basically negotiates on behalf of its national interest. Uh, despite what some people think, personalities will not win the day. So the main thing is to appeal to Chinese interests. Now, this was Kissinger's approach and Nixon's with every interlocutor, particularly with the Chinese. So what you first do with the Chinese is what do they have to have or what do they really need? What are their red lines? What are their bottom positions? And see how you can at least persuade them that we were meeting their basic objectives while maintaining, of course, our own principles and interests. Uh, so taking the longer view, a strategic approach, it certainly worked in the 70s. Now, it's much harder today when we're co-equals essentially in many respects in power, if not essentially, but China's much stronger and there are many more interactions. Plus, you don't have Henry Kissinger's and Joe and Lies around anymore. So I'm not saying that's possible, but certainly in those days. I still say it would still apply to appeal to Chinese long view and interests, self-interest, and so on. Secondly, of course, I'm not putting this in order of importance, but uh, personal relations can be of help around the edges. You can build up a certain trust. I don't want to denigrate that. It's better than having testing. And over time, uh, I'm not talking about necessarily today, but still, as a principle with the Chinese, uh, if you can build up some record of mutual respect and achievement, uh, that can help you at least navigate crises, if nothing else. So that's of some interest, but much less important, obviously, than self-interest. Uh, thirdly, with the Chinese in particular, you've got a question of face. Uh, and so therefore, you always want to give them a chance to protect their face. And of course, the classic example was the Chinese agreeing to liaison officers, but nobody called them embassies back in the 70s. So those are, those are important. Like any negotiation with the Chinese, you've got to mix sticks and carrots. So there's got to be incentives for them, whether it's economic or security or whatever it is, uh, things that they think serve their interests, but a little bit of pressure and firmness to suggest that uh, we're not going to roll over. So I've always believed, even as we speak today, that part of a good relationship with China is being willing to be firm with them uh, while respectful and pushing back 
uh, when necessary. So having settled that, there's some genuine generic principles over several decades, but a lot of that has changed uh, with the current leadership uh, or even recent administrations on both sides. On, on that, you started your career in the Cold War. Uh, there's talk today of a new Cold War, a cool war between the U.S. and China. I wonder how you see that as someone who grew up and spent your career a lot of part during the Cold War. Are we entering that sort of new period between the United States and China? How do you see that? I don't know how much I'll leave this to the editor and you, whether you want to get on current affairs, because that's a big issue. <clears throat> There's no question in my mind today that we're at the most serious inflection point in U.S.-China relations since the opening. Uh, we've had past crises but they've generally been over one issue, or when China was much weaker. So it would be Taiwan, it would be planes colliding, uh, bombing the wrong embassy, uh, you know, bomb any embassy, I guess, but bombing the Chinese <laughs> embassy. Uh, and of course, Tiananmen being the most serious, but even Tiananmen was at a time when China was much weaker and therefore there much less interaction for good and for ill. Whereas today, it's systemic across many spheres of interests and, and values. And secondly, of course, uh, you have the historic phenomenon of a rising power and an established power and how they adjust to each other. We've had examples where it's worked out pretty well, other examples where we've had world wars, the so-called Thucydides trap. Uh, I don't believe we're destined for outright conflict uh, or even uh, terrible Thucydides trap. As we speak here today, there's a tendency we, the current, on current issues, but I think we have to take the longer view. Uh, I think there's enough interest on both sides to prevent this relationship from totally deteriorating. Uh, that's not a very positive prospect. I'll get back to that. But neither side obviously wants war. Uh, both sides have a tremendous economic interest. Both sides can help and need each other on world problems to solve them. Uh, and both sides have an emphasis, particularly the Chinese, on their own domestic stability and economics, and real conflict would be a real challenge to that. So that's the, the uh, floor of the relationship, that we're not going to get below that floor. Uh, having said that, we have a real problem now with a very high ceiling. Uh, we've always going to have problems with different interests and certainly different domestic political systems. There's always going to be a ceiling in our relationship because of different values, systems, domestic political systems, and concrete geopolitical interests. Uh, but, of course, that ceiling looks even lower today as we speak. Uh, and I would put the bulk of the blame, without getting into great detail, on the Chinese, under Xi, They've been much more aggressive in their repression at home, including the terrible Uyghur situation, but all kinds of other issues. They're promoting sometimes interference as opposed to just influence in other countries around the world, exporting their human rights issues overseas and crossing lines of sovereignty. Uh, on economics, they've become more mercantilistic and protectionist. They've been more aggressive in security terms, including in the South and East China Seas. Uh, so this, in my respect, my view, is obviously poisoning relationship. The response to be firmer by the administration makes sense in terms of strategic competition, but it's going about it in a ham-handed way in the sense of 
what we need is, above all, to get our act together at home, both economically and politically, and not have polarization and not discourage immigration, uh, et cetera. Uh, invest in our future so we can compete with China. <clears throat> and we have tremendous relative assets compared to China. We should be self-confident. Work with our allies, and particularly on economic issues. You're much more effective than having trade wars with your allies uh, to collect your allies in constant pressure because they're unhappy with Beijing's policies as well as us, uh, and participate in multilateral institutions to expand our influence, and to seek to cooperate with China, which is another part of our policy should be, including on issues like climate change, Iran, North Korea, and we never should have put out of the TPP, which is a geopolitical as well as an economic disaster. So identifying the problem is correct under the current administration, but the response has been, has been terrible and it's making China great again and leaving the field to China. So uh, having said that, to get back to your question, uh, I think it's going to be a, a tense period for, for a while. I think what you need, and I would put in an advertisement for a recent task force in U.S.-China relations public, published in February 19, I mean 2019, uh, in which we do say we got to be firmer in response but that we shouldn't throw the baby out with the bathwater, that we all want stable U.S.-Chinese relations, and the authors of this uh, a collection of some of the top China watchers, all of whom work for relations, including myself, for half a century. But you need firmness in certain areas, including the ones I mentioned. You need guardrails to make sure we don't stumble into mismanaged uh, and miscalculated conflict. But you should continue to seek areas where we can cooperate, including on multilateral agreements, which we pulled out of, as well as other areas like anti-terrorism, uh, pandemics, uh, anti-piracy areas where the Chinese have actually been constructive uh, on the world stage. Uh, a lot depends on what happens in China, of course, and what, whether they moderate some of their policies or whether they continue to create tension. So. We're going to stay between uh, a ceiling and a floor, the ceiling being close partnerships and cooperation. I think those days are gone. The floor being outright conflict. If you excuse the expression, our relationship will continue to be sweet and sour. Uh, one last comment. There's sort of revisionist history now saying that all this push by administrations of both parties for, quote, engagement, which, by the way, is a process, not a policy, was naive. We expected them to become a democracy overnight, and we thought China was going to change its spots once it got in the world system, uh, and that their political system would evolve. Many of us, including me, were, were hopeful that China would have gone further in terms of becoming a responsible world citizen and a looser political system than they have by now, particularly after Tiananmen with a massive outpouring of desire for these goals. <clears throat> but those who pressed for engagement, I'm using shorthand here, we're not naive on the whole. And we always hedged with alliances, military buildup, uh, firmness where, we, where necessary. Uh, and furthermore, what were the alternatives? Were we supposed to try containment from the beginning, which is impossible? You couldn't get the rest of the world to go along with us because of China's economic leverage. So those who call for decoupling or containment, I think, are the wrong response. Those who do not identify the fact that China's become an or, a more unpleasant partner and a more dangerous one or naive and wrong. So you got to get a more centrist position of 
firmness but still seeking to stabilize the relationship and believing that firmness helps you stabilize the relationship. Pastor Winston Lord, thank you so much. It's been really a great uh, pleasure. Walk down memory lane. Thanks for sharing. Well, your my pleasure. And the questions are only as good as the answers. So, Appreciate it. Ambassador Winston Lord speaking with me from New York City. You've been listening to the U.S.-China Dialogue podcast from Georgetown University. I'm your host, James Green.